0: The Bible, as you know, is a collection of 66 books and letters in this library, love letters, we could say for all of them, not just the letters of John, because they express to us the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We read in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, by this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. But among all these love letters, the two most curious are 2nd and 3rd John. They're, they're a little strange that they're included in the library of the 66 books. When you compare them to books like Isaiah, which itself has 66 chapters, or the book of Revelation, when you begin to look at other passages of Scripture and books and letters and writings and the Gospels, and then you come to 2nd and 3rd John, you kind of scratch your head and say, wow, I mean... It, it, we studied Second John on Sunday. There's great stuff there, but interesting that it's included in the collection. And as I said on Sunday, it's really like you're reading someone else's mail. Third John, even more than Second John. As you read it, you're like, well, I, I see who John is talking to and what he's talking about and why even this letter was sent. But, but that it's included in Scripture is interesting that it would be here among the considered inspired books, inspired by the Holy Spirit of the living God. Third John is a personal letter. Written from John to a beloved friend with a singular purpose. And I'll tell you right up front, it's a very specific kind of letter. In fact, I've written many of these letters over the years. None of mine have made it into Scripture. (laughs) Letters for colleges... Jobs and scholarships, letters of recommendation. That's what 3rd John is. Centuries before motels began springing up along Route 66, these letters of reference made all the difference in the world between a warm meal and a good night's sleep, or a hungry night out on the hard, cold ground. To be received in a village or a town, you needed to carry letters of reference from another village or town that supported your character, the nature of your travel, why you were doing what you were doing, where you were going. These letters recommended strangers to become welcome guests and even friends. And they also avoided the problems of unwanted solicitations or Or even worse, dangerous associations. As people went from place to place. Well, Third John is a reference letter. John's personal recommendation, not just for a person, but actually for a group that are traveling together, I believe with the gospel. Traveling missionaries. One in particular carried this letter with him and would present it to the recipient as proof that they came from John and were sent by John. Or out of the church of which John was a part? Probably Ephesus. And that's 3 John. It's a letter of recommendation. It also strikes an unusual note of warning against a self-serving opportunist. There's a man mentioned here, and just by what John says, we understand a lot about him. This guy is positioning for power... And it causes the Apostle of love, remarkably, to issue strong words of disapproval. I mean, not unlike a Trump tweet. The things that he says come off very strong worded. This is the love Apostle who wrote about love. Is this letter spiritually instructive? Yes, it is. Is it helpful in our Christian walk? Absolutely. Is it inspired by the Spirit of God? Does it really belong here in Scripture? And I would say to you tonight, absolutely yes. Unequivocally yes. The skeptic wants to know why. Wants to understand all the reasons behind why would you include this? And why is this important? And we've talked about a few of those things in 1 John and 2 John in introducing all of these love letters. We've we've talked about the fact that there were early church fathers who supported the fact that John wrote these But even with that, great, John wrote them. Does that mean they're inspired? I'm sure he wrote other letters that are not in the Bible. We know Paul did. We know other apostles wrote different letters to each other that didn't make it into Scripture. Did God preserve these? I believe He did. How do we really know? Well, aside from the facts, and I think you'll see this tonight, the Spirit tells you so. You will know by the time we're done reading through and studying 3 John. You'll know. In your heart you will understand and I'm not talking about some weird esoteric thing. You will know this is the Word of God. Not only is it the Word of God through John in this letter of recommendation but it's the Word of God preserved across the centuries for the church and it's the Word of God for the Bridge Christian Fellowship here and now. The message of this letter is a message as important to us as I believe it was to the man who received it. So let's, let's move through this. There are four persons mentioned part of this letter. There's the writer, the recipient, there's the reprimanded, and there's the recommended. And we're going to use that as our outline as we go through. The writer, the recipient, the reprimanded, and the recommended. And we'll take the first two together. The writer and the recipient are the elder John, the apostle, and a man by the name of Gaius, verse 1. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. There's love and truth once again, as we saw in 2 John, as we saw emerging in 1 John. And as with 2 John, here he refers to himself as the elder. The elder, and I believe this is an alias. I believe it's a code name due to threats and persecutions that were against the church at that time. So John doesn't necessarily name himself. We're into a different era now as we come to the end of the first century and persecution has ramped up intensively. So letters like this would be sent out and they would have a concern not only for themselves, but to the recipients themselves. And you might say, well, he names Gaius, the elder in alias, to Gaius. Well, now Gaius is going to be in trouble, right? Well, here's the thing. All three additional names that are listed in this letter are common Greco-Roman, if not Latin names. Gaius is a Latin name. It's actually Caius in the Latin. Gaius in the Greek. It means Lord or Sir. Possibly derived from the Latin word for rejoice. But the bottom line is this is not a name that would red flag anyone. This is a letter that would go by, and if a centurion or someone grabbed it, or, or, or someone who was opposed to the movement of Christ, grabbed this letter and, and read the elder. I don't know whether that is Gaius and, and, okay, these other guys, oh, okay, those, those are citizens. Just let it go. It wouldn't raise any concern whatsoever. There are four Gaiuses actually mentioned in the New Testament there's Gaius of Corinth. In Romans sixteen twenty three and 1 Corinthians chapter one verse fourteen, he's listed. Those verses are up behind me. There's Gaius from Macedonia, who's mentioned in Acts nineteen verse twenty nine. There's Gaius of Derby, and he's the one who accompanied Paul with some other men to Jerusalem, Acts chapter twenty verse four. And then there's this Gaius, the beloved Gaius, who the elder is writing to in love and in truth, Gaius. Whom I love in truth. I like that phrase because it's both genuine and it's positional. Genuine and positional. What do you mean? It's genuine because John truly loves Gaius. So for him to say, this is Gaius whom I love in truth. Yeah, I love you. Of course I do. But it's also positional because he loves Gaius in truth. That is the truth who is Jesus Christ. So he both loves him truly, but he loves him in truth. One is how he feels, I love you truly. The other is why he loves him, because he's in the truth. Because he's in Jesus. The why factor, I think, is what we need to remember from time to time when we love each other. Not just how I feel about someone in the church, but why should I love them? Because they, like me, are in truth. Because you're in Jesus just as I am in Jesus. Therefore, my responsibility to love is heightened. So John has both the how and the why. 1 John chapter 2, verse 5 says, Whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought to himself walk in the same manner as he walked. So we can read about Gaius here, the beloved Gaius, whom the elder loves in truth, and we can turn around and say we know and accept him by association with John. Hey, John loves Gaius? Gaius must be a good Gaius. <laughs> so we, we can say, yeah, we have, we have an affinity for him too. I, I, I don't know if this happens with you, maybe I'm just weird, but I read names in the scriptures and if they're associated with someone that I know or recognize, I kind of like them already. I know nothing about this guy, but John calls him beloved, so I want to meet this guy. You know, that's how the church has been grown. You might say it's been built by association. Built by association. I love the pattern of God. He builds by association. He doesn't build by big signposts. He doesn't build by big flashy programs. He builds... One person to another, to another, to another. And oh, you know that guy? Well, if you know that guy and I know you and you're in Jesus and he's in Jesus, well then by association, I love him too. And the body of Christ is built. Built by association. Man, the wisdom of God is in this. And it can be seen in how Jesus built His church. Matthew 16, 18. I will build My church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, He said. And He began to build it right there with three guys. And then the 12. And then the 120. And then the 3,000. And then the 5 and the 10. And on we went. But Jesus builds by association on the foundation, 1 Corinthians 3.11, of Christ. As you know, Christ... And someone else knows Christ and another knows Jesus person by person. Or as Peter put it, living stone by living stone. We're built together. 1 Peter 2, verse 4, coming to Him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. We are not built up to be stone cold, however, but to be rock solid in love with Jesus And in love with each other because we are in love and truth. True relationships. Truth and love. And I know we went over this on Sunday, but we got to keep going over it. Besides the fact John uses the word truth, as you know, five times in this letter. He'll use words for love seven times. That's important. John continues to be the apostle of love, even with some of the strong warning that he gives here, which we'll get to. But four times he uses the word agapetos, which is the adjective form of unconditional love, and it's translated beloved. Beloved. Verse 1, verse 2, verse 5, and verse 11, where he uses the word beloved, it's all agapetos, from agape. Two times he uses agape, or agapao, in the verb form. Here in verse 1, who he says, To the beloved guys whom I love, I agape in the truth. And then down in verse 6, speaking still of Gaius, he says, they have testified to your love, to your agape. So that's six of the times, and there's one more time we see the word love, at least in the English, and it's translated that way, but it's negative. It's in the negative. And we will see that in just a minute. But John continues to his agapetos, his beloved Gaius. He says in verse 2, agapetos again, Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. Isn't that true? That if you are in good physical health that your mental health tends to follow or if you're in good mental health that you tend to be physically healthy that the two are symbiotic? Have you noticed that in your life? Joy is energizing and sorrow is Exhausting. We find laughter actually tickles. You know, when you get going. And I know every one of you, I don't care how sour or dour a face you might put on sometime, every one of you have had those moments where you can't stop laughing. You remember those? Maybe you were a kid rolling around on the floor in your bedroom with a friend, just laughing your fool head off, and you couldn't breathe. And I'm looking at some of you remembering right now because your faces are grinning. That feeling, I mean, it's not just (laughs) what's coming out of your mouth. It's what's going on in your heart and your, it actually tickles, which makes you laugh more. There's a physical reaction here to an emotional thing, while on the other hand, anguish really hurts. I mean, you feel it, don't you? The physical and the mental connected here, and John ties them together that you may be in good health just as your soul prospers. Your soul is the mind. So as your mind prospers, that your body would prosper. But it's not just mental and emotional or mental and physical. The spirit plays a huge role in the health of our bodies and our minds. It's, it's a role that most cultures, especially ours, truly ignores. Our culture doesn't get the spirit. It doesn't understand our spiritual nature That if your spirit is in bad shape, you can be the best bodybuilder in the world and the sharpest mind, but something's not right. And you feel it and you know it. Because mind, body, and spirit are symbiotic. The three are so interrelated, you you can't pull them apart. Psalm 32, verse 3, David wrote, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. That's mind, body, and spirit. My sin caused me to... I felt it. I was groaning. Wiped me out. He says, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away with the fever heat of summer. Written by a man dragged down in his own sin. Feeling it. Experiencing it. Laboring it over it. Or, on the other hand, Proverbs 17, verse 22 says, A joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. The Bible's been talking about this connection between mind, body, and spirit since the very beginning. Listen. My spirit, as intricately connected to my soul and my body, as my spirit, and we've talked about this, but i got to repeat it, as my spirit is in fellowship with God, my mind is healthier. And my body is healthier as well even in ways that normal anguish or physical pain can't affect. That is, I can still have remarkable peace when my spirit is connected, when I'm paying attention, when I'm in tune with the Spirit of God. I can have remarkable peace though my body is racked with pain. I can have amazing peace though all the stress of the world would normally be pouring down and dragging me down when I'm in tune with the Spirit. I was sharing with John and Lisa, it's been a year now since I was laid out for three weeks, four weeks really, including the hospital stay, from, from my surgery now a year ago. And it was so weird because it was one of the most painful times of my life and yet I kind of look back at it with fondness. Why? Because I was so chill. I, I was reading books. I had my Bible there my computer. I could pull it over. I, I could pray. I didn't have anywhere to go or anything that I could do. And though my body was in pain, my spirit was rejoicing. Because I could be in the peace of Jesus. This is what Isaiah wrote. Isaiah 26, verse 3, The steadfast of mind, or the mind stayed on you, you will keep in shalom, shalom. Because He trusts in you. So this is the key. I would tell you, before doctors or the gym, your first move is the Spirit of God. Going to the Spirit, taking life to the Lord, and trusting in Him. Because as our minds are stayed on Him, as our minds go to the place of the Spirit, we're in peace. In fact, it's interesting, after saying, rejoice in the Lord always, in the context of that, Paul said in Philippians 4.6, be anxious for nothing. When well, you read that, and you go, Paul, you don't know my life. You make me be anxious for nothing. Do you have any idea what I've got on my schedule? Just for this week, he says, In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. All that to say this, the best thing to do, the best prescription for health, be it mental, emotional, or physical, or spiritual is trust the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Now, some have used verse 2 wrongly, I think, as a claim on healing. In fact, it's it's a favorite in the kind of name it, claim it faith movement. Those who say that this is God's promise that in all respects, we will prosper and be in good health. See, God said it. No, John said it to Gaius as a greeting to a friend. That's the context. That's the meaning behind it. In this personal letter, just as you might write, Dear so-and-so, I hope and pray that all is well with you. Well, that's not an automatic promise of God the Father. Oh, so you're denying us that verse. I just don't think we need to make Scripture say more than it does. Jesus has already done all that's needed for our truest and best healing on the cross. Healing and restoration is already provided. Isaiah 53, verse 5, He was pierced through for our transgressions. Same transgressions that laid out David. Not my son, I'm talking about King David. Same transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. So we don't need to discuss whether or not Jesus heals. Of course He does. We don't need to discuss whether or not God wants to heal. Of course he wants to. But verse two is not a healing verse. It's just a verse from a friend to a friend saying, hey, I hope that all's well with you. Spirit, soul, and body. Trust the Lord. Verse three, for I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth. That is how you are walking in truth. I'm glad he, he modified that because if we left it at people came and testified to your truth people in our culture would go see there's all kinds of truth there's his truth and there's your truth and there's the other person's truth no no he's talking about how this Gaius is walking in truth that John has gotten testimony back he's heard about Gaius that's kind of how these letters work by the way if someone was known to be a trusted individual in another village then that's who you would send somebody to with a letter of recommendation So you would have this association already set up. And John's just saying that. The brethren came, they testified to your truth, how you're walking in the truth. And John says, I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. He said the same thing about the children of the chosen lady in 2 John. I have no greater joy than just knowing the people I know are walking in truth. But here we get to learn what exactly he means... And how this is exemplified in real life. Verse five. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in, watch this, in whatever you accomplish for the brethren and especially when they are strangers. Note this, what he actually says, the actual translation is this. You are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren and these strangers. So he's not just making a blanket statement. This is a specific statement. These strangers, that is the people coming to you that I'm sending to you, bringing this letter, as you're standing there, Gaius, at your front door, and you're reading this letter, and you don't know this group of people, that's who John's talking about. These strangers. You're acting faithfully in whatever you do for them. So, So do for them. Verse 6. And they... Have testified to your love before the church. That is the brethren who, who know this Gaius. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. Listen, we are down to the brass tacks here of love in terms of hospitality. One of the most practical ways love is lived out. And we've been saying with John so far, we're not into love theologically. Even love doctrinally. We get it, the teaching, we're supposed to love. But what's going on here? What John is getting at is this is how you do it. Hospitality. Guys, listen. This is something I have left mostly to my wife in our marriage. She's got the hospitality angle. Just let me know when the people are coming. I'll show up. But she's the hospitality. That's, that's her area. I don't see it. I don't know about you guys, but I sit around the house I just don't see it. We were, I was talking about this today. You know, the house needs things to be done. I don't see it. I don't know. Cheryl sees it. Rick, can you vacuum? Why? I didn't even know we had carpet. (laughs) Love, in terms of hospitality, do not ever underestimate the worth and the value of hospitality. Of receiving people, not just into your house, but into your home. Into your life. Breaking bread together. Again, this was huge in the first century. You didn't break bread with people without sharing your heart and your life and intimacy in a way that we don't get in American independent culture. But hospitality is huge. I'll tell you this, there's a group of people, I'm not going to name them right now, but who have taken Cheryl and I in to just have us over for dinner. Kind of like sharing dinner with with the pastor. And I can't tell you what that has done for us, how sweet that is. Uh, they're sharing life. Just pulling us in, not for any other reason, but just to do it. And, and to share an intimate evening together of food and fellowship. I love this. And, and if they're hearing me, I want them to keep doing it. So, you know, it's, it's, a, good, it's a good thing. But love and hospitality, this, this is the service of the gospel. This is what the Gospel does. See, the Gospel is preached, but the Gospel is also lived. And it's not lived without being preached, but it's also not preached without being lived. Do you understand what I mean by that? There are those who get into the debate about the social Gospel. Shouldn't we just live the Gospel? Just do good things. And then we don't have to preach Jesus. No, we need to preach Jesus. We need to speak the name of Jesus. We need to talk about the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the whole hope. If you're not speaking that, you're not doing anybody any good. But we don't just speak it. We live it. Because if I'm speaking the Gospel and I'm not living the Gospel, who's going to believe me? Love and hospitality. Jesus put it this way. Matthew 24, verse 45, He said, Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. He even puts it in the context of a household. The idea of a servant serving the servants. Of someone opening the door and feeding and caring for all those around them. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2.12, Walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. There's God's hospitality. He doesn't just call us to be followers. He calls us into the kingdom. He opens the door. This is Jesus who says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Open up. I'll come and have dinner with you. Hospitality. John is not describing... What we might assume when we think of mighty men and women of faith. And I think that's one of the things I love about this simple letter so much. When we talk about faith and following Jesus and really giving your life to Jesus, sometimes we look right beyond. In fact, often we look right beyond simple things like hospitality and we look to missions, you know, or evangelistic campaigns. Big moments for God. Martyrdom of the saints. When we look at things like those who by faith, Hebrews 11.33, conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. I read that and go, that's what I want to do. And I go charging right past hospitality. Hospitality. What a simple thing. Such a little thing. And yet, it is one of the beautiful reasons this letter's here. To remind you and me that faithfulness is as plain and as simple as loving hospitality. And that's the scenario before us. This group of tra- traveling evangelists, probably sent by John, now they come. To, Gai- to Gaius and they go from Gaius and they go back to John. Man, he treated him really well. So John sends another crew. But this time go straight to Gaius because this guy, man he'll take care of you. And his reputation, Gaius's reputation precedes him. So John sends the gospel team back. And that's how it works. Verse 7, For they went out for the sake of the name accepting nothing from the Gentiles. So now talk, John's talking about the team. The gospel team. They went out Note that he says, in fact, it's interesting in this whole entire letter, you will not read the name Jesus once. He never names Jesus. He names the name. That's a very Jewish thing to say, Hashem in the Hebrew, the name. They have they went out for the sake of the name. Now, Gaius knows exactly who the elder, John, is talking about. But that's another hint that he's he's Coding this message, they went out for the sake of the name. And they accepted nothing from the Gentiles. So he says, These guys are worth supporting. And by the way, this has always been church procedure. This is this is good church procedure. It's our responsibility to take care of the apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. That's what we do. We do not expect the non believing world to do that. So we don't charge for the gospel. We don't have the bridge. We don't charge for teachings. If someone wants to go online and download a teaching, great. It's not my word, it's God's word. We don't charge for what we do. People can give to the Lord. But we take care of the ministry. We take care of the gospel. It's our responsibility. That's why we've talked about tithes and offerings. You realize the tithe and the offering is the responsibility of the believer for the furtherance of the kingdom of God. That's what we do. But we don't expect a non-believer to do that. We do it so we can get the Word to the non-believer. So that we can preach the truth and get it out there. So we take the resources that we have and we put it into the kingdom. And from our church, you know, 20% goes to missions to get the Word moving out even beyond our four walls. And then there's money that comes in here that goes to staffing and to ministry and to approaches that we prayerfully hope will bring people to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our responsibility as followers of Jesus. And that's exactly what John's doing here. Gaius, you take care of them. I'm sending them to you because they went out getting nothing from the Gentiles. That's key. Because again in those days, that's what the traveling teachers did. The philosophers, they sent around the collection plate. They were in it for a buck. To make a little extra money. And there were scam artists out there. But here come these, these teachers of this truth. Of this Jesus. And they teach and they share. And they go home, hey, they didn't ask us for any money. Yeah, because the gospel's free of charge. We charge no one to receive salvation. God paid in full for that. But we, the church, we take care of it so that the non-believer can have it free of charge. Paul said as much. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 7. He said, Did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? If you may recall, when we studied Corinthians, the church at Corinth was bad mouthing Paul because he didn't charge. Because they were used to that. Traveling teachers charge, philosophers charge. Why didn't you, Paul? What's the matter with you? Because the gospel doesn't cost you. It costs God everything. The gospel's free to you, and free to those who don't believe. Paul said, "I robbed other churches by taking wages from them." to serve you why would Paul do that because the responsibility is the churches. it is our responsibility when we talk about giving here at the bridge no one's trying to bilk anyone but it is our responsibility as believers in Jesus Christ to support the work of the gospel it's what we do Why would we do it? Because we believe so much in it. Paul says, when I was present with you and I was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, which by the way was a very poor region, they fully supplied my need. And in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you and I will continue to do so. And I'm going off on this because that's exactly what Paul is now asking Gaius to do. You support these guys. We know you have in the past. You're generous you're a good Gaius. You support them and take care of them so that they can do the work of the Gospel. Verse 8. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers in the truth. There's your cap on it. Of everything that I was just stating. The word support there. We must support them. We ought to support them. It's lombano. Les loves that word lombano. He mentions that every now and then. Lombano is to receive. And we've got to Lombano. We receive the truth. We receive the gospel. We receive our salvation. But here, Hupo Lombano means to receive from beneath. Okay, To receive from beneath or literally to welcome and to receive with hospitality. To come under someone and receive them in. To to support them. That's why the word says support. You're bearing someone up in support. He's coming alongside under them to say, come on into the house. And he receives them with hospitality and support so they can do their mission. Let me say one more thing about this. Some of us, many of us in here will never go on a mission. Don't sit around and feel bad about that. Just support those who can. Some of us will never be able to. Make those distant trips or go on those campaigns. Some may never pastor or, or teach, at least in the formal sense as we understand it. But we all can receive and bear up those who do in support. We can do it in meals. We can do it in places of refuge. Come stay in my home. I love hearing that, by the way. In fact, I happen to know, and there's another thing I'm going to do anonymously, but I happen to know there's a house that's going to be used for some people coming up for a retreat from El Salvador next week. One of our houses here in the bridge, one of our families is bringing some missionaries up to, to give them some respite and some peace. That's exactly what John's asking Gaius to do. That is living out the love of the Gospel. I get excited about it because it's so easy. We can all do it, and many of you have... And you do it also in your tithes and offerings. You're trusting the Lord for the work of the kingdom. People in those days were, were used to crooks and shysters and traveling scammers who are just in it to make the money, and people are still leery of those scams today. So we take care of the need. We support the work of the gospel so the non-believer can just come and hear it free of charge. Now the sad part of all this is there are some, even in the church, who are looking out for number one. We've seen the writer and the recipient, John the Elder and Gaius. We now come to number three, the reprimanded Diotrephus. Diotrephus, verse 9. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephus, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say, or literally, does not accept us now step back Jack for a minute this is the Apostle John the last living Apostle and this Diotrephus has the audacity to not accept someone sent by John not even to accept John's teaching this guy is bad news Diotrephus his name means brought up by Zeus and I think that probably fits Brought up by Zeus. All high and mighty. Now, what's interesting is Diotrephus is not listed among or or accused of being like the many antichrists that John talked about in the previous letters. Many antichrists have gone out from us. He doesn't say that that's what Diotrephus is. Diotrephus isn't trying to preach another Christ. He's just preaching himself. This guy is consolidating power and he's coveting position. And here we find the one negative use of the word love in the letter and it's philo protuo. Philo being brotherly love, prochuo it means loves to be first. Diotrephus who loves to be first, literally who aspires to preeminence. Now we've never seen this in churches, I'm sure you haven't. The person who is there for themselves And is putting down others to climb into position for themselves. And that's what is going on here. This Diotrephus and John is going to call him out seriously. And we'll read that in just a second. But I remind you when it comes to preeminence what the Bible says. Colossians 1.18 says, He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. That's Jesus Christ. He's preeminent. None of us are. None of us are to aspire to position in the church or even in the world. We're not aspiring to be greater than others. I remember one who who did aspire to preeminence. And then fell mightily from the heavens. His name in Isaiah and in Ezekiel. Lucifer. He aspired to be higher than God. Man, God is opposed to the proud. But gives grace, you know, to the humble. This guy loves to be first. God is first. Jesus is. Jesus even warned of this. He he warned of the pharisaical motive that desires prominence and celebrity. He writes in Matthew 23, verse 5, They do all their deeds to be noticed by men. That's a good warning for all of us. If you find that you're doing what you're doing, for the accolades or for the attention even, man, stop doing it. That's the wrong heart. We're not doing these things to be seen. They broadened their phylacteries. They lengthened the tassels, those, the zitzit, on the end of the prayer shawls. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues. And they love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. Oh, rabbi! Yes, my child. But Jesus says, do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher. And you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth Your Father, for one is your Father, He who is in heaven. Do not be called masters, He says. For one is your Master, Christ. And then He says, But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. And whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Christ is the preeminent One. And remarkably, and you all know this, Jesus never Himself in the flesh aspired to preeminence. What did the preeminent One do? The colossal Christ, what did He do? Well, He emptied Himself, Philippians 2.7, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the pattern. That's the Jesus we follow. For this reason also God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the preeminent one who absolutely and abjectly humbled Himself. That's Jesus. I love the song that Rachel wrote that we ended with tonight. Just Jesus. I love the, the interplay of the song because on the one hand, she's saying, they're all looking at Him going, it's just Jesus. We sing, it's just Jesus. Give me nothing else. Just, just give me Jesus. He's the one who said in Matthew 11.29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Hey, what are we supposed to learn, Lord? Some new, exciting thing in Scripture? What are we supposed to learn, Lord? How to use the spiritual gifts more powerfully and potently Learn from me, he says, I am meek and humble in heart. And note the hospitality, you will find rest for your souls. That's Jesus. And he is the pattern for us. This Diotrephus, I call him the doofus Diotrephus. John notes several things about him. He says, first off, Diotrephus was jockeying for position, clearly rejecting the authority of the Apostle there in verse 9. And in verse 10, he says, For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does. Unjustly accusing us with wicked words, and not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either. And he forbids those who desire to do so, and he puts them out of the church. This guy's a jerk. I'm sorry, that's just what's going on here. And notice the phrase there in verse 10, not satisfied with this. Well, that's sin. Sin is never satisfied. The manipulator is a malcontent. (laughs) This Diotrephus is discontent. And this kind of attitude, you can't stop it. It always goes further. This kind of person always does more harm I've seen this in churches, not here, praise the Lord. But I have seen this in churches where someone does damage and you better believe they're going to do damage again. And they're going to do damage again and again. You hurt one person, they're going to hurt another and another and another. I'm talking about those who are intentional in their position and their desire for power and it just doesn't work in the church. This is the person who's always cutting off more people, chopping and dividing again and again. And John says, I'll deal with him. I'll deal with him if I come. How? John's going to call him out. In more than a Twitter storm. He's going to do it in person. And you can almost imagine, so does John show up at at the church where Gaius attends and get after this guy? I, I don't know if that happened. He says, if I come. So we don't know if he got out there or not, but he threatens. going to get all up in his face. But listen. There's a little Diotrephus in all of us. And I hate to say it, but it's that part of the self that strives for some kind of position or station. For some, it's wanting to be the big fish in the little pond. For others, it can be something as simple, listen, It's as simple as being discontent with where God has you. Or discontent with what God's doing in you and through you. It's just not enough. And when we get that way, we start to, without realizing it, become inhospitable. We clamber over people to get where we feel like we need to be. I, I told our staff this morning, and I think about this all the time, we are not here for ourselves. This is not my ministry. This is his ministry. And, and none of us are here for what we get out of being a part of this fellowship. Truly, if we're being honest and recognizing the Word of God, we're here for him, and we're here for each other, and we're here for a lost world. But the diotrephist says, I'm just not happy with where I am. Listen, if that's you, there's a very simple solution for it. Call it out. Call out those deeds. Call them out. Confess. Lord, I confess to you, I have not been content with where you have me. I haven't been content with my income. I haven't been content in my family. I haven't been content here on North Whidbey Island. I am discontent. Discontent is dangerous. Remember what Paul said? Godliness with contentment is a means of of great joy. that's, That's the deal. And the diotrephus attitude can start as simple as discontent and ultimately become dangerous and damaging and divisive. And by the way, John here warns, I'm going to deal with diotrephus when I come. You know what? We all know this. Jesus is going to deal with all the diotrephuses when he comes. And it's not if he comes, it's when he comes. Matthew 24 47. Jesus continued the parable we were reading earlier about the servant caring for the household and being hospitable. And Jesus says, If that evil slave says in his heart, My master is not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect, at an hour which he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Diotrephus is named in Scripture as one who is inhospitable, manipulative, and plugging for his own position. And if that's ever you or me, call it out. Call it out. Confess it before him. Verse 11, John writes, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Beautiful verse. That's the key verse, by the way, of this letter. If you want to pick a key verse out, that's the one. The whole letter is summed up in that simple verse to imitate what is good, not what is evil, and whoever does good is of God. And by the way, if you do good, you have seen God. If you don't do good, you haven't seen God. What he's getting at here, and it's important to note, our, our good behavior in these matters, it reveals whether or not we've seen God. What do you mean? I thought no one had seen God. Didn't John write that? No one's seen God at any time? Didn't God tell Moses that? You can't see me? The day you see me you're going to die. So, so what can John be saying here? The one who does evil has not seen God, implying that the one who does good has seen God. What's inherent here is the word good. And I want you to get this because this is in contrast to another word that John used in 1 John, which is the word righteousness. Remember those who practice righteousness are born of God? Righteousness is what we do in alignment with God. It's the keeping of the commandments. It's those actions and behaviors that we do that are right, they're correct, they're, they're the commands. Goodness is something different. Yeah, it's good to be righteous, and righteous to be good. I guess you could say that. But John is not just talking about doing the right thing, he's talking about doing the good thing. And in this letter, the context of the word is generosity. In fact, the word agathos in the Greek can also be translated generous depending on where you're using it. John using it here in the context of hospitality is talking about being generous. Do not imitate what is evil, but what is generous. As indicated in hospitality. The one who is generous is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. And we're talking about seeing God by faith. Taste and see that the Lord is good, Psalm 34a. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Now, take this a step further. God does good things. He's also righteous. Which means everything God does is right. His, his morality, His value system, his, his behavior. It's always right. Jesus is always right. Never does the wrong thing. But He's also good. And that's a hospitality word. When God, Genesis chapter 1, created the world, what did He say at the end of the first day? It's good. Second day, it's good. Third day, it's good. Fourth day, good. Fifth day, good. Sixth day, (laughs) that's very good. And He took the very good and He put it in the good. God made a good world to be hospitable to you and to me. So from the very beginning we have seen this goodness. It's the most simple of behavior. It's doing the good thing. If we've tasted and we've seen the goodness of God, the blessing, the hospitality of the Lord, how can we not do the same? If you've seen that, if you've known that, then just do that. As God is good, so we are to be good. And I love the hospitality of the world. We can get into this. Maybe we will when we swing back around, Lord willing, to Genesis someday. (laughs) But in Genesis chapter 1, you see this amazing balance for everything that He creates in the, in the world. He, he creates a home for everything else. Back and forth between the first and second, and third and fourth, and fifth and sixth day. If, if you read the creation account, first it's like He builds the house, and then He puts something in it. And then He builds the house bigger, and He puts something in it. He builds the house, finally He puts mankind in it. All of the bad that's in the world I believe, is a result of our sin. And that includes the hurricane that is right now barreling toward the East Coast. What? You think that's because of sin? Yeah, I do. Because sin entered the world, death entered the world by sin. Oh, come on, Rick, you don't think there were hurricanes before? No, I don't. Before they sinned. Earthquakes? Famines? No. I don't believe that happened sin into the world and hospitality went out the door it's almost funny to say this because hospitality has been such a light term and is a light term in our culture but to God it is as important as creation he saw that it was good he made the world hospitable so that we would have a home and he invited us into that home and now he looks at you and me and says do the same thing do that Invite one another in. Invite people into the home with generosity and hospitality. And you might say, well, Rick, you told us on Sunday to slam the door in their face. I did not. <laughs> it's not what I said. Look at Second John verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. If someone comes preaching another Christ, you are not to be hospitable. You don't let that in. That's a wrong spirit. And I'm not talking about lost people. Lost people, almost more than anyone, need our hospitality, need the goodness, need the love. We invite them in. Come on in. If you don't know Jesus, come into my home and let me show you Jesus. But if you're coming to me bringing another Jesus, an Antichrist, you are not welcome with that here. And that's what he's talking about in Second John. And in Third John, he turns right around and goes right back to this hospitality, saying, yes, this is our responsibility. If we turn a blind eye to the goodness of God, then we will not see God. Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is a letter of recommendation, and with it, hospitality. The act of good love is recommended to Gaius. It's called out in Diotrephus. He's not acting in it. But then we come to verse 12. Demetrius has received a good testimony. Good is implied, but he's received testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We might say from the truth himself. And we add our testimony so that you know our testimony is true. And my friends, that's the recommendation of Demetrius. That's it. One line. One verse in the letter... But it's the point of the whole letter. He wrote this letter to recommend Demetrius and and the traveling group that are coming to Gaius. That's why he sent it out. But there's something interesting I've got to point out to you here. One of the Gaiuses that I've mentioned to you before, four different times we see the name Gaius in the New Testament, one of them was from Macedonia. And he traveled with Paul and he came to Ephesus, watch this, about that time, Acts chapter 19, verse 23, about that time there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way, we're in Ephesus here, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends on this business. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but also in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned a considerable number of people away, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Cutting in on our business. Not only is there a danger that this trade of ours will fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis might be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. When they heard this, they were filled with rage. They began crying out saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Note this, the city was filled with confusion and they rushed with one accord into the theater dragging along Gaius and Artemis or Aristarchus, sorry, Aristarchus Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. Now, this is only conjecture. I can't prove this. There's no further evidence to support this. But it fascinates me that here in 3 John, he's writing to Gaius and he is writing to recommend Demetrius. In Ephesus, it was Demetrius who led the charge and Gaius who got beat up. I don't know if they're the same two guys. I'll tell you what I do know. Jesus not only has the power to change a life, he has the power to unite the ununitable. And I could very easily believe that this Demetrius may well have been the silversmith who set the city of Ephesus in a rage against Paul and his companions, and this same Gaius receiving the letter (laughs) may have been the Gaius who was beat up in Ephesus. If that is the case, and it one way or another doesn't change the meaning or, or the purpose of the teaching here, but if that is the case, can you just imagine for a moment the look on Gaius' face when he opens his door and there stands Demetrius? Better, can you imagine the look on Demetrius' face when he pulls the letter out of his cloak and hands it to Gaius? Gaius. <laughs> This is from John. Don't sit, just read it. Just read it, man. As he slides to the back of the group, you know. It's such an interesting thought. But we know this truth, and John has poured out this truth again and again and again through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John that the extremes are brought together in love and in truth. I even think about our fellowship. How extreme we all would be without Jesus. How unique we might be. How how disparate in the world and how we may never have even come in contact with one another, but for the love and truth of Jesus Christ, He pulls us together. And you know what He does? He pulls us together even when we're pushing each other apart. Jesus has this marvelous way. The Spirit of God has this way of healing and uniting. And when we get into our skirmishes, you know, like the children of the chosen lady being little brats, when we do that kind of thing, Jesus, He just pulls us together. Sometimes it's on a Sunday in worship we look over and we see that idiot who upset us last week and they're just singing away. It's like, "Ah, that guy loves Jesus too. Okay. It's marvelous. But He can even bring together those who are beaten up by those who are doing the beating. He can bring them together. That's what Jesus does. So the recommendation for Demetrius comes here at the end of the letter, just this one line, and it's just the testimony. So simple. He received testimony from everyone. And from the truth itself, and we add our testimony too, and you know our testimony is true. And that's really all it takes. You see Jesus in people, don't you? Don't you just know? You can vouch for someone because you've already seen Jesus active in their life. That's the testimony of the truth. It's how Demetrius lived. And it's who he was in Christ. And we don't need to know anything else about Demetrius, but that others could say he's a good guy, Gaius. Welcome him into your home. Verse 13. I had many things to write to you, but I am not willing to write to you with pen and ink. And I told you before I believe the many things ends up being first John, because he just can't help himself. But I hope to see you shortly. And we 'll speak to you face to face, he said the same thing to the chosen lady and her children. You see because for John, rightly so it 's all about relationship. Our Christianity is Christianity when it 's face to face don 't don 't spend your life tweeting and and emailing and texting and don 't let that be the standard of relationship. let's get together and i 'll throw out this challenge to you all when I hear someone say. I just wish your church was more welcoming. I, I, I want to turn right around and say to them, well, welcome me. I'll, I'll come to your home. But it's incumbent on all of us. In fact, I will raise this at a level even above what I said earlier when I was talking about it is our responsibility to support the work of the church and the work of missions. And it is, you know what I think is even a greater responsibility? That we love each other in the goodness of hospitality. That we go out of our way. That, that we're the ones on a, on a Sunday morning, for example, walking in the foyer, not looking for the people we know, but looking for those who seem a little lost. Looking for someone who, who maybe you've never met before. Oh man, it's uncomfortable. I know! And, until you break through. Until you have the conversation. Until now you're in a new relationship and that feel, person feels welcome. I just think that's something we could never work on enough as a fellowship. Welcoming each other. And welcoming those who may feel unwelcome because they don't know anybody, or maybe they're new, or maybe... Boy, you know what's embarrassing? When someone's been here two years and come up and introduce themselves to me, and I go, Hey, how long have you been here? Two years. Oh, that's great. (laughs) Of course, I always say, Well, why haven't you come to me before now? (laughs) No, I don't. I'm kidding. Hospitality. That's the message of the letter, and it's a vital message face to face and finally says in verse 15 peace be to you, the friends greet you, the friends this code for the church greet the friends by name John doesn't by the way, he doesn't greet the friends by name this isn't like one of the letters of Paul where the last several verses are people who are being named greet this person and that person and that person John doesn't do it, remember there's care being given with this letter he ends with this subtle code He avoids location. He avoids identifying information. But there's love here. Greet the friends. Welcome warmly. Gaius and Demetrius in this letter, they remind us of this truth. The only love letter from God that some people may ever read is the one they read in you. It's the one they read in me. We are especially living in a culture that does not know the Bible So many people either have never picked up a Bible or will never pick up a Bible. And so the only Jesus they may ever see is the Jesus they see in you. That may be the only motivation someone ever has to even open a Bible. Crack the Scriptures and to read and study. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 1, Do we need as some letters of commendation to or from you? You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that You are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. You know what I'm sitting here looking out at right now? A library of letters. Love letters. Every one of you and myself. We are God's love letters in this world. And we are to be read. To bring people... To the gospel of Jesus Christ. So be like Gaius, walk in the truth. Be like Demetrius, of, of good testimony. Better still, just be like Jesus in truth and in love. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word to us. Thank you for the challenge that you set before us. The reminder, once again, and Lord, I need this reminder because as I said, Father, I do have a tendency to launch to the heights. You know, I want to see or do or be involved with the big things, the great ministry. And Lord, it just seems to me that you find such joy in the hospitable home, in the, the family who opens their door in the people who invite others in. And I pray, if nothing else, that this simple act of hospitality would impact all of us tonight and we may see and recognize that our greatest ministry may simply be hospitality. Thank You, Lord, for Your goodness to us. We thank You that You have made a home for us even temporarily here. And we even know, Lord Jesus, that You are busy preparing a home for us in heaven. We long to be there. But until we come home, Jesus, help us to show Your goodness in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, when Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens, I will come in and and I will dine with him. He said that after the resurrection, which came after the crucifixion. That He died and by His death and sacrifice and blood. And through the resurrection, He then could turn around and say, I want to sup together. It was the blood of Christ that provided the ultimate hospitality of Christ. And when we share in communion, as we're going to right now, Remember that He gave everything that we might come home. He is the the hospitable One. And that's the goodness that we're called to emulate. Communion is prepared up here in the front. Let's worship Him and break bread together.